And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. So today's topic is one that I personally have been curiously fascinated with since I was a wee little tyke. We're going to get into the history of Ouija boards and more generically talking boards. Now, this is a perfect supplemental interview to uh, last week's interview with Mitch Horowitz uh, titled Occult America. We kind of go into the spiritualist movement as a segment of our discussion, but here we're going to talk about it in depth because the Ouija board sprang out of America's fascination with spiritualism, the other side, the ability to communicate with ghosts, the dead. And just a fascinating part of our history because at one point in time, Ouija boards were considered kind of a fun-loving uh, device, board game, a game is specifically that people had, everyone had in their household. This was a, a phenomenon, kind of like the Slinky, Rubik's Cube. Uh, this was everywhere. And nowadays, when we think of the Ouija board, it's, it's a tool of evil and, and a dark portal into another time, another dimension where demons take possession of you or at the very least uh, can cause harm in your life. That wasn't always the case. Uh, for actually most of the history of Ouija boards, that was not the case. We're going to talk about that. And uh, my interest in Ouija boards actually started when I was, you know, when I was a kid. I remember going to sleepovers with my friend David and his sister Kathy. And we always had kind of an interest in, you know, as a morbid curiosity of these types of things as kids. And I remember pulling out his parents' old Ouija board, one from the 70s. Uh, I think it was made by Parker Brothers at the time. And, you know, just the idea that maybe this thing will work. And so you, you pull it out, you have candlelight, it's, you know, it's in the middle of the night. You got a bunch of prepubescent boys and girls sitting around this thing. And everyone takes two fingers and they place it on the planchette. And almost by magic, this thing starts kind of whizzing around the board. And the board has letters, you know, it's A through Z, numbers 0 through 9, uh, yes, no, hello, goodbye. And you start to get answers to your questions. And it's it's really bizarre when it starts to happen because immediately people start throwing accusations back and forth. You're moving it. You're moving it. No, you're moving it. Uh, I, of course, uh, I'm sure this comes as a surprise to no one, was the most vocal about accusing other people of moving it while simultaneously being the one most likely to move it. So I... I I gotta say, I was probably not the best person to play with if you were looking for uh, real answers, but I did have a good time playing it with it. No bad things ever happened to me, nor do I personally believe that this is a tool of the devil, but I will leave that up to you, and I suggest strongly that you hold your opinion of the Ouija board until after you hear this interview with Robert Merch. Merch, thank you so much for being on the program today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So you are the chairman of the board. I am. I'm the uh, chairman of the board of the Talking Board Historical Society, which is a, a group of like-minded individuals all dedicated to preserving and celebrating the history and the use of talking spirit and Ouija boards. 
So were you elected chairman or did you appoint yourself? <laughs> I was elected, actually, but um, after 25 years of doing this, uh, pretty much kind of took the mantle. It's like a dictatorship now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it's not something a lot of people aspire to be, so it was pretty easy. <laughs> <laughs> Your competition was weak, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but So you're a historian. I mean, you're a legitimate historian of the Ouija board. Uh, is, that, is that correct? And how did you get into this? Yeah, I mean, you know, the joke is I'm a Ouija historian, uh, along with quite a few other people. And, you know, just to, to say right off the bat, uh, though I am seen as the face of this, there are a lot of people I collaborate with, including National Archives, um, Library of Congress, you name it, many libraries, uh, lots of other historians. I basically got into it because there was a mystery. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the Ouija board itself is a mystery, mm -hmm. but where it comes from and who is involved, it's another story. And each one of those people who were involved has their own story to tell. And in 1992, I was in a quad going to University of New Hampshire. Oh, and in a quad. Oh, yeah, I was man. in a quad, three guys uh, for roommates, and they decided they wanted to rush for fraternity. And I knew that if I did that, I wouldn't graduate. So they could go, I could go to the parties. And one of the things they had to do on their rushing was a, a treasure hunt. And I had to find some old Ouija boards. And so I did. I used to go antiquing, flea marketing from Boston. So, you know, very East Coast thing to do. And suddenly I had 10. And they were all different. And I thought, isn't there only one Ouija board? And why are there so many different ones? So I went to the library. Uh, we had them back then. And every encyclopedia said the Ouija board came from somewhere else. And I just couldn't understand how something so iconic, so embedded in our pop culture, everyone has a story, everyone knows what it is, but we don't know where it comes from. How can that be? And so I was hooked. And it set me off on a 25-year mission to figure that out and have met a lot of interesting characters along the way. You know, when you say you found them in a flea market, it's like an 80s movie waiting to happen. You know, where you like you walk into this <laughs> flea market that just appeared the other night and you find this mystical board that tells you the mm -hmm. future. Uh, did anything like that happen? Were you just, like thrown along an event, strange events and crazy stories or was it pretty normal? You know, no, it's it's always crazy. Um, you know, just sitting here and doing this interview with you is crazy. So um, I take personal I, offense to that. So. <laughs> I, um, I, I think, you know, as human beings, the Ouija board is very personal. It, it explores our relationship with death. And because we see it as something mystical and we don't know what happens when we die, finding one of these boards, it's easy to say it found you. Or we attach dots that aren't necessarily need to be attached. So as a historian, I'm always trying to pull myself back and step back from things and look at them very clinically. But it's impossible to do with the Ouija board because it's very hands-on. It's something mm. you have to be part of. It doesn't work without you. So the fact Or does that, it? Or does it? It's never worked for me by, by itself, okay. but um, I have seen that in the movies, and that's pretty cool. Sure. <laughs> but, um, your hands have to be on it. So the Ouija board is a function of you, an expression of you, and you can't help but be part of it. So the fun part for me is that you know, in doing all this research and meeting all these people and working with everybody, that suddenly you're part of the story. Mm -hmm. And that's something you're not supposed to do when you're a reporter or be a historian, but the Ouija board doesn't, won't let it be any other way. <laughs> I mean, yeah, by its nature. I mean, you have to be. Uh, now, you got into this. I like the fraternity story. That's kind of a cool story. But you, so a movie kind of spiraled you into this thing, right? Like, yeah. Was that, was, was that the genesis? I can find the genesis, these little seeds. What, what was the nugget that started this whole thing? The nugget that started the whole thing was my grandmother. Um, 
I was raised Orthodox Jew, and and for all your listeners who can't see me, completely don't look like that. Mm-hmm. Shaved head, earrings. Yeah, not tattoos, at all. And, um, but when you're raised Orthodox, um, you know, God, the devil, ghost, demons, all that's very real. So it's not surprising. It's just expected. And my grandmother loved sci-fi. She made, let me do everything my mother said I couldn't do. I don't watch Creature Double Feature. The minute my mother would leave, my grandmother would say, hey, Creature Double Feature time. So she took me to Witchboard when I was 13 years old. And I was hooked because Kevin Tenney did this amazing movie where the board was the main character. And the board caused all of these things to happen and people to react a certain way. And I just found it amazing, even at 13, that people had such a polarized reaction. Some people love it. So if you talk to someone much older, they'll say, oh, I loved playing the Ouija board. We used to scare the crap out of each other or my little sister. But if you get past 1973, people will say, absolutely not, get that out of my house. I would never touch one. And so it's a really, it's a fun thing when you get such a broad range of reactions. Well, and a very pivotal moment at which it all changed. And we're going to get to that in a second. Uh, I like that story because my grandmother was very similar. She was a devout Catholic, but for some reason was had this whole idea. She loved spir- uh, supernatural stuff, paranormal stuff. Um, you know, she, she would let me watch scary movies. So it kind of, I totally understand where that comes from. Uh, it's kind of like why I, I like weird stuff like that too. Now you have a pretty big collection of these things. Um, so throughout your, you wanted to find mysteries. I like that as well. Uh, and this set you on a course, and you kind of accumulated thousands, millions. What's the number at? Yeah, I have over a thousand different talking boards, and talking boards is the general term for Ouija boards, spirit boards, talking boards, um, and I have over a thousand different boards. But then there's variations of those, and I I don't just collect the boards. I collect everything about them. And that's cataloging when they show up in movies. Mm. That's uh, the covers of magazines. That's sheet music. Everything from the late 1800s to today. So that I can see how people viewed the talking board in every decade we're talking about. Because it's not that it changes dramatically. It's just that many talking boards, the artwork that's on them, reflects what people think is mystical in the time that it's being shown in. So you can learn a lot about just what people are saying. So that's articles, everything. My, my house is a uh, living museum to the Ouija board. <laughs> Do you charge admission? Or I mean, have you put up like an official, or is it just like? It's, I just moved to, from Boston to Denver, and I'm turning the entire finished basement into a museum. So oh, okay. there won't be any, you know, yeah, admission is your immortal soul. So if you come in, <laughs> you've sold your soul, and that's it. But no, no, it's mostly to share. And, and again, since the Ouija board is a reflection of our relationship with death, it's a great conversation because that conversation hasn't been finished. We still don't know what happens. But mm. people believe, and belief is nine-tenths of your reality, so there are a broad range of beliefs, and the Ouija board allows you to explore it. So for 1995, you get an unlimited calling plan to the other side, no roaming, no overages. <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and right, like the Ouija board, the first wireless communication, the first text, come from the Ouija board. So this is a device that's very uh, applicable today. Yeah. Know? Oh, I mean, I would say the, the, the telegraph was probably the first transmitted signal, but I do, I, I do <laughs> like where you're going with it. Uh, th- let's talk about some of the boards. I, you must have some really interesting boards, either ones no one's heard of, oldest boards, uh, darkest boards. Let's hit all those. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the oldest one that you have? Well, it, talking boards as we know them today that look and act 
just like what we think of as the Ouija board, that starts in 1886. That's the modern era of talking board, right? Yeah, you know, uh, modern spiritualism starts uh, in 1848 in upstate New York with the Fox sisters. And so these sisters start talking to spirits, the early Associated Press picks up on the story, and suddenly America, the world, is talking about talking to spirits again. And uh, for people who don't have the gift, who aren't considered a medium, devices start to come up that allow people who don't have this gift to make contact. And some are sold as novelties, some are sold as spirit communication tools. Um, in 1886, an article about the talking board taking over Ohio gets picked up and is spread all over the world. And diagrams tell you how to make it. It's really not until 1890 that Ouija itself is named and uh, starting to be manufactured. So. Uh, the difference with Ouija and other talking boards, which makes it unique, is that Ouija was marketed to everybody. So previous talking boards from 1886 and other devices might have been marketed to spiritualists, people who were purposely and believing they were talking to the other side. Mm -hmm. the, the magnificent ideas of the Kennard Novelty Company, the first company to make the Ouija board, was if they went outside that market, if they said, we don't know why it works. We just claim that it will exceed your greatest expectations. Well, suddenly, you don't have to be a spiritualist. Everyone would want this in their parlor. And so their market got huge. And mm -hmm. you, you match that with the time it's happening in 1890, and mass production of anything is on the boom. So Ouija was really lucky in the timing that it was at and had some pretty great business minds behind it that we're still talking about it 126 years later. Well, what's funny about that is, you know, it's m much like anything where you have a group of specialists who have special tools and they want to sell you those special tools. And then once you market that to the consumer and you can just have it in your house, like instead of paying, you know, $100 an hour for a medium, I can pay $1.25 for the board and just kind of do it, you know. I mean, it's not going to be exactly, not get the exact same experience, but it's significantly cheaper, which is kind of what added to the, um, to the popularity of the Ouija board. Absolutely. And the other thing is you're part of it. So if you hire a medium mm. in the 1800s, late 1800s, they're doing it. You ask the question and maybe they're answering it, they're funneling the spirit, or they're in charge of everything. But with the Ouija board or any talking board, it's you. It's personal. You're part of the connection. It's your fingers on the planchette. You're listening to it move. You hear it kind of scrape across the board. It's a connection that you're involved in. So you are not a witness, you are an active participant, and that makes the Ouija board special because you're not just looking at someone else thinking, are you faking it? Mm -hmm. You know, it could be yourself, you know, again, it sure. could be your subconscious that's making it work, but you're experiencing that as opposed to watching it. Well, I will admit to you, I've never admitted this before, uh, but it, a lot of times it was my conscience that was moving it, so mm -hmm. I was doing it on purpose. Um, <laughs> but most times I believe it is the unconscious or the other side, who knows? Um, you, I wanted to ask you about your boards in particular, but you kind of popped into the history. Let's finish that history. I want to shade in some of the, some of the areas there. Because the spiritualism uh, has an interesting history in and of itself, and this really paralleled that. I mean, they really, you know, at the beginning of spiritualism, this was kind of the first, um, like, novelty in a way that was kind of marketed at the consumer, if, I, if I'm remembering correctly. I can't think of anything else in that movement that would have been so popular and so readily available to the average person. Uh, and so cost efficient. So they kind of mirror each other. So let's talk about that. The, um, so you mentioned the Fox sisters. 
uh, Mr. Slipfoot, I believe, is the person that they were talking to. Yeah. Now, at that moment, that was they were using basically knocks, yes and no's, and alphabets, but just noises, right? And then that's what kind of translated, like, hey, let's make this a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, yeah, so it starts, again, modern spiritualism. People have been talking to the dead in all civilizations since the beginning of time, since the beginning of recorded history that people... We only have an hour. Realized <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that people died and didn't come back. Yeah. They wanted to part the veil. So for us, if we're talking about modern spiritualism, it's 1848, and it's the Fox sisters. And they would point at cards and letters in the alphabet and you know, knock mm, when mm. the right letter would come up. Got and it. So they were pretty close to talking boards oh, from okay. the beginning. Okay. But another device that was very popular for its time was the planchette. So the part today that is the movable piece on the Ouija board actually existed on its own. Instead of a big hole that you would look through, it had a small hole for a pencil, and it had two wheels on the fat side of it, and it looked like a heart. And that was about 1853. You would place your hand on that, you would ask a question, the spirit would come through and write out the answer. So that spirit writing or automatic writing. And it, even though that oh, was- Oh, it would, it would actually do the letters itself, not point to anything. Right, but, okay. qu- but quickly people figured out, well, I can turn the pencil around and I could lay out these cards and it could point to those things. Got it. So, so some people were doing that on its own. And again, so talking board-like devices or talking boards in a general term exist before 1886, but in 1886 we see what we think of as the Ouija board, a completely movable planchette pointing out the letters. Got it. Um, now, this becomes... So I love the news story that kind of made this popular. You said it's 1886. Uh, it was a mysterious talking board and table over which northern Ohio is agitated. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of... So that picks up, uh, I think, in, in one of your interviews that you did, you mentioned that AP just came into being. And so national news was kind of just starting. And this was, again, like just coincidence, happened to be right at the forefront of that. And it was at spiritual... You know, the time when spiritualism was popular. Uh, we've got news that can now suddenly reach the entire nation. And this hits the newswire. You know, it's not just in northern Ohio... Mm-hmm. All over the place, and people are like, "This, you know, this this could be legitimate. Let's grab one." Yeah, it it, it and it's not just national. This this Associated Press, you know, this article we've traced hits London, Paris, Sydney, Australia, wow. everywhere. So America really embraces the talking board, unlike other areas at the same time, because there's something about America where playing with the spirits is acceptable, and other countries they have the same belief in different areas and cultures where you can talk to spirits, but you don't play with them. You mm-hmm. call upon them maybe when you need help or when you're looking for revenge. Playing with them comes at a cost. And that's why the Ouija board is looked at as so dangerous. What happens when you open up this portal, when you decide to make communication? And so, again, the early company, by not saying this is what's happening, by saying this is an amusement, this is a parlor game, we mm-hmm. don't know why it's working. Is it telepathy? Are you talking to the spirits? Are you just using your subconscious? By not answering that question, they perpetuated the mystery. Right. No, I mean, that's the best part. I mean, it's what you don't see. You know, some of the best horror movies, what you don't see is what scares you the most. Absolutely. Uh, it's, no, it's great marketing for them. Uh, now, I don't think we can really understate how popular spiritualism was. Like, now we look back and it's kind of hokey. A lot of the seances were fake. Houdini busted a lot of these people. Um, you know, it was all bogus, most of it. 
um, 99.9% of it, I will say. There's always leave a little sliver there, Merch. I always leave a little sliver. But, you know, you had Mary Lincoln was into this. You know, mm-hmm. after the Civil War, like, I think even well, before the Civil War, because Abe had a seance in the, I call him Abe. That's what I, I call Abraham Lincoln, <laughs> Abe. Uh, I had him in, he had a seance in the White House. This was popular. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were three or four presidents that were into this type of mm-hmm. stuff. I mean, you can't really understate this. Yeah, and I think, you know, as a historian, you always have to look at something through the lens in which it happened. So when we look back at the Ouija board, it may not necessarily be how the Ouija board was looked at at that time. In fact, a company from uh, Lemonster, Massachusetts in 1886 made a witch board. That's what they called it. And they sent it to President Grover Cleveland at the Mm. White House as a wedding gift. And it's probably a publicity stunt because the guy's trying to, like, sell his wares and, of course... He just happens to send a copy of the letter to the Boston Globe, who prints it. The president writes back, thank you so much. I really appreciate this gift. I take it as a token of friendship, but I I won't be testing out its powers of past, present, and future anytime soon. And so, of course, that letter gets printed in the Boston Globe as well. And so... It's product placement. It's the first product placement before movies. Exactly. But as you talked about spiritualism being so big, think about the time. So even if you don't count the Civil War in which everyone lost somebody, a father, a son, an uncle, a grandfather. Death was a huge part of your life in the 1800s. A lot, it was a lot closer to you than it is today. So today we don't want to look old, right? We have plastic surgery, we dye our hair, we go to the gym, we live longer. But you're talking about a time when you'd have 12 children and six of them would die. And when they died, you'd dress them up in clothes and take pictures with your living children and put that photo on your wall so that you remembered them. The original funeral parlor was your parlor. Death was all around you and so much a part of your life that talking to the dead was an obvious thing to do. Today, death is further away from us. So it's not that it's ever more comfortable. No parent who loses a kid says, oh, by the sixth one, no big deal, I'll just have another. It's not like that. It's just that when you have to deal with something consistently, it becomes a big part of your life. And today with death being further away, living in a first world country, having great health care, we live longer, it's scarier because it's more unknown. It's not as close to us. And so the Ouija board represents that, what we're uncomfortable with. It allows us to experience the uncomfortable and unknown, hopefully in a way that's okay. But the fact that it might not be okay is what makes us play. What if it works? Yeah. Well, I, I think you're I think you're right. I think one of the intriguing aspects of this is that it is a possibility to communicate with someone that you've lost. Um, I think that's really the draw. I mean, because people, you know, as kids, you always want to talk to, you know, usually a celebrity or someone, a ghost in the house or, you know, someone who can, you know, has access to knowledge you don't have access to, whether it's the future, whether it's the presence, you know, somewhere else like that. I think that's a draw. But I do think that, you know, especially in that time, if you have, you know, kids or adults or you had a husband who went off the war, like you want to communicate with them because you want them to be around you. Mm-hmm. I think that was a big draw, too, because this was very popular amongst the common folk. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are the people who are fighting the wars for us, as well, I said. And you have to remember in the time that these devices, not just talking boards, but other devices that aren't popular today, they answered questions that nothing else could. There was no CNN. There was no Fox News. There was no 24-7 you know, telling you what was going on around the world, these people went off to war or left and just never came back. Mm. And so you don't know what happened to them and there's no way to know. So asking something else that could possibly give you an answer 
is very applicable to today because even though today we know what happens the second it happens across the globe, there are still things we don't know. And what if someone dies suddenly and you never got a chance to say goodbye or you never got a chance to apologize for some horrible thing you said because you were just in a bad mood and had a bad day or make it more personal? What happens to me or my loved ones when we die? And so that, that question that is still being asked is what makes the Ouija board still popular because though some people will ask, does Bobby like me? And they want to know. Ultimately, what you're really asking is not whether you can talk to the dead through a Ouija board. It's can you talk to the dead? Because what people forget is that the Ouija board is just a telephone. It's just the tool you're using. There's nothing mystical about plastic and cardboard. I promise. Like I, I, I'm with you on that. Up. Yeah, I totally agree. The portal or what's opened, the veil that's parted, is in you. And so whether that's your subconscious, whether that's talking to some other entity, whether that's opening your mind to telepathy, whatever it is, it's you. The Ouija board is different because we give it power. So when something goes wrong, unlike any other spirit communication tool, it's the Ouija board. The Ouija board is the bad thing. If something goes wrong, get the Ouija board out of the house. It's causing it. When the truth is, it's just you and something else, you and your subconscious, you and another entity, you're having the conversation. It's all about you. But we put this on the board because it allows us to have control over something we don't have control over. And so it's a really fascinating thing. So the board gets this kind of bad rap when something goes wrong, but it's like we're doing this interview right now. So say we're on the phone, get into this big fight, call each other names, threaten each other. You know, you don't hang up your phone, throw your iPhone out the window and say, I'll never have another one of these in the house again. But with a Ouija board, that's what happens because we don't want to take responsibility for the fact that we're actually doing the communicating. We are doing the conjuring. We are asking something to communicate with us. It just so happens we're using a Ouija board. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. But, you know, I think the, the element that... The, so my personal belief is that this is, like you said, it's a tool. I, I'm a logical person. I don't necessarily believe that this can this opens some kind of portal or a veil between the other side. I think it is a lot inside of you and in your own subconscious or whatever it is. I think that there's very little that's mystical about it. Uh, that's my logical side. Now, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, a skeptic, but I also, you know, I'm an open-minded skeptic. So mm -hmm. I believe that there maybe there's a possibility. And I think people love that idea that what if, maybe. What if this is a portal? Um, so that, I think that's what's intriguing about it. But I do think that it, it, you know, for people that have that belief, you know, there, there's a lot of strange beliefs out there. And if people do actually believe that this is a portal, I do understand that if what message comes through that you don't want it to come through, that you will believe that not that it's the board, but that whatever's on the other side of the board gave you that message. And now we must get this communication tool, this portal, you know, this mystical device out of the house because that is the only way that those messages can come across. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So I think the people who want to get rid of it really truly believe that it's some sort of mystical device. I just mm -hmm. don't happen to believe that that's the case. Well, and, and what's great about that and the Ouija board is still that it's belief. It's what you believe. Yeah. So your experience at the Ouija board may be very different than someone else's. And if you believe you've made contact, that's real. There's no doubt that that's real to you. And I could tell you that's clearly your, self -con your, your subconscious. I, mm. I'm watching it happen. I, I can see you're pushing it. Right. It doesn't matter. 
because belief is nine-tenths of your reality. Mm. I mean, if, if you go to church and you believe that saying a prayer turns a cup of wine to blood mm. and you drink it, there's no difference. That, it's the same thing that you're doing with the Ouija board. The difference is, is you know, the Ouija board is everywhere. This can, mm. you, know, you can be a little kid playing it. You can be an older person playing it. And, and for people who get upset about the Ouija board being marketed or sold in toy stores, you know, it's like newsflash that Ouija board has been sold in toy stores since 1890, the beginning. Right. And the reason why that is, and on the original boxes, it would show a whole family playing the Ouija board, a little girl with a teddy bear underneath her arm, is because, again, death affected them just as much. We didn't shield children from death because we couldn't. Everyone was dying around them. Right. So there's no way to do it. Today, again, you know, we don't let children go to uh, funerals. We keep them away from that. We want to have them have a childhood. You know, back in the 1800s, kids were p working at 12 years old. You know, today we're, oh, let them be kids. You know, then that's great. It's a wonderful thing. But, you know, when they would see people talking to the dead, it was just as real to them. And because they were missing the people that were around them. Yeah. And again, if you believe, who am I to say, I think we don't understand the power of the brain as much as we will in the next hundred years. And so when you sit at the Ouija board and you believe you're making contact, it's just as likely to me that you're talking to a spirit as you're creating whatever entity. You know, if your mind has a physical effect on the world, can't you make something? There's been you know, many studies of people making up hauntings mm. just to see what happens. Well, I'll tell everyone this house is haunted. This is the spirit. Well, things start to happen. People start to hear things because, again, you've planted the seed. So the Ouija board is that seed. What is it really that's working? I don't know. And is it the same every time? But like you said, it's that chance. What if it actually worked? Yeah, I think that keeps people there. And, you know, it's funny because there's this whole phenomenon of tulpas of people making, you know, making things appear out of nowhere. Now, that's a practical world application of what, you know, what is really quantum physics in a way. Like what, you know, what can something exist in two places? Can we, our thoughts actually manifest, you know, what is the reality? And I think there are a lot of real world scientific studies that say that what you believe uh, you actually can alter the world around you, which is kind of ridiculous when you think about it. Like if you had that kind of power, you could harness it for evil. Um, no, let, I'm just not really for evil. I'm just kidding. Now, let's <laughs> let, let's get back to the history here, because, you know, we got really deep there for a second. And I think the history of this uh, is kind of cool. It's a fun marketing uh, exploration. Because you got this guy, Charles Kennard, who, uh, is it Kennard or Kennard? Kennard. Kennard. Oh, it's way off. So Charles <laughs> Kennard, uh, so he kind of, he's a varnisher, right? So he's a wood varnisher. Am I getting this wrong? You do it. Let me, yeah. You, yeah. So what happens is, is there are two men who claim to invent the board that would become Ouija. And that's Charles Kennard and E.C. Rush. And they both live and work in Chestertown, Maryland. Uh, Charles Kennard is a fertilizer salesman. Uh, he does a lot of other business things, as many people did at the time, hoping one of them would take off. E.C. Resch was uh, very interesting because he was an undertaker. He was a cabinet maker. Mm. He made coffins. He just did a lot of different stuff. According to Charles Kennard, he came up with this idea in his kitchen. His mind was blank. He put his hand um, on a saucer, turned it over on a breadboard, and he noticed his hand was starting to move around. He claims he does this in 1886, the same time this article explodes in every paper he would have been reading. So again, he never claims to invent the talking board. He claims to invent the board that would become Ouija. So in 1886, Charles Kennard and E.C. Resch make a bunch of these boards in Chestertown, and they're pretty popular. According to Charles Kennard, he wants to sell these and says, let's get into business together. 
You see, Rush, she's no practical application. No one's going to buy these. You can make them yourself. No, thanks. I got a good business going here. Charles Kennard moves to Baltimore in 1890, meets Elijah Bond, who is a patent attorney, and he patents it, assigns half of it to Charles Kennard, and they start the company, the Kennard Novelty Company. E.C. Rush would quickly, after the Ouija board's introduction a year later, show up and say, hey, this is my idea, and you guys are making money off it, and I wasn't paid. And Charles Kennard is saying it was him. But after uh, an investigation by the directors of the company, they decide E.C. Rush is the inventor and that they pay him in stock in the Mm. company. Which, again, if you think about this, most people would say, sue me, let's see what happens in court. They don't do that. They pay him off. So whatever the proof was, we don't know. That's a mystery I'm still looking to solve. Okay. Um, They believe he was the inventor. And so then we have uh, William Fold, the man and whose family also makes the Ouija board for a long time. He's one of the original... uh, Stockholders, one of the original people in the company. He's a varnisher. As Charles Kennard exits the company, as Elijah Bond exits the company, he gets appointed and put in charge, and he would make the Ouija board with that company until 1901 when it goes under his name, until 1966 when it's sold to Parker Brothers. Wow, that is a good cliff note. I did like my Mad Lib <laughs> version earlier, but, <laughs> but, but yours is way more accurate. Uh, now, I think that, you know, I'm sure you've been asked this a million times, but the board, how it got its name, is kind of the subject of controversy. I hear four or five different stories. Uh, what do you think the real story is? Well, one of the stories we've uncovered is the story that the uh, people who started the Ouija board agree on. So I can't tell you it's true. I can mm. tell you that according to them, what happened was I was working with the Baltimore Sun going through the archives. And I found a series of letters from the originators to the um, editor explaining in their voice what happened. How did the Ouija board start? So it starts with the Baltimore Sun interviewing William Fold, who's making millions of dollars off the Ouija board, kind of going to his factory saying, who's making these Ouija boards? Is it witches and ghouls or is it regular people? You know, it's kind of a fluff piece. But they ask a question that starts months of controversy and years now. Years. Um, Decades. They ask him, they ask him, who invented the Ouija board? And he says, it wasn't me. It was this man named E.C. Resch. Well, Charles Kennard is taking advantage of, in 1919, this huge boom in Ouija board sales. Mm. He creates another talking board called the Weird A. And it's not only a talking board, it's a writing board. So he incorporates that automatic writing back into the board. So you get like a, a two for one kind of thing. So he takes the opportunity to say, whoa. The originators of the Ouija board have never talked about how it started, but I'm going to give you the real deal. And he writes a very long letter to the editor about what happened. And part of his story is that one night in 1890, he was at the corner of Center and Charles Street in Baltimore, and he was at Elijah Bond's rooms. And the board had helped them in the past. And so they asked it what it wanted to be called. And he was with Helen Peters, who was considered a strong medium and was the sister-in-law of Elijah Bond. And with her at the board, it answers O-U-I-J-A. And when they ask what that means, it answers good luck. And so Ouija, the Egyptian luck board, is born. Why Egypt? Well, to them it sounded Egyptian. There's no such language as Egyptian. But that's what was mystical in 1890, right? There were you know, all these discoveries in the Valley of the Kings. And to Americans so far away, Egypt was the ultimate mystery. And so you know, tying that into marketing is great. But an interesting thing happens with Charles Kennard. 
Helen Peters pulls open this locket, and he says there was a figure of a woman with the word Ouija over it. And he says, because he's kind of smart, were you thinking about that when we asked the board? And she said no. And so they adopt the name. But was she? And what's hard about that is the word didn't exist anywhere until that night. We have never found that word show up before that night in 1890. So did it misspell it? Was it a different word? Was it Wisa? Like what was on that locket? And the hunt for the locket is still ongoing. And well, I thought there was some, uh, you know, some evidence that the locket was of a person whose name was Weda or something, and yeah, that's we, another theory, right? Weda was popular at the time. The problem with that theory is that most people only wore lockets of other people if they died and they knew them. So there were lots of mourning lockets where you'd have hair inside. Mm. So it's possible she was wearing a locket that maybe the nickname was Weda or Wisa or whatever, and because sometimes the Ouija board, whether it's your subconscious or not, spells things wrong, maybe it was a misspelling, a subconscious misspelling, or maybe that was what it meant to say. But it took a long time to... Helen Peters had been erased from this story, as unfortunately many women are in history. You know, it's a, it's a good old boys club. But for years we thought the Ouija board just had a father, and many fathers, and suddenly it had a mother. And we had to figure out who Miss Peters was, and then what happened to her. Mm-hmm. And she actually has a great story because even though she then goes with Elijah Bond to help get it patented, because the patent office says, uh, I, you know, how do you prove this thing works? So they write back to Elijah Bond and say, hey, really sorry, but unless you come demonstrate it for us, we're not going to do the patent. He takes Helen Peters, his sister-in-law, who's a strong medium with him, and they prove it one by one. And this is according to Helen Peters' um, Helen Peter's grandson, and some of the stories that are written down. And each clerk doesn't want to put their name on it because they just probably don't want to be a laughing stock. Like, oh, I'm the guy who signed this. Perfect. So it goes all the way to the chief of the patent um, office, and he's pretty annoyed that he has to come in and do this. He's got other people who are supposed to be taking care of this, right? So he comes in and says, according to, this is the story Helen Peters told her grandson, if that you know device can spell out my name, then you've got your patent. You don't know me, I don't know you. If this works, perfect. Well, Helen Peters at the board, it spells out his name. And a very visibly shaken patent office guy says, you've got your patent and I'm out of here. And so the patent's approved. And so she's a really integral part of the story, but according to her family, she leaves the Ouija board pretty quickly. And the story is, that they had this huge collection of Civil War buttons, that some of the wars and the battles had been kind of fought on the Peters property in Virginia. And kind of weird and morbid, the kids would go out at night and cut off buttons of the dead soldiers. And they had this pretty large collection. Off of dead bodies, right? Off the dead bodies. Yeah, that's crazy. And um, Very morbid. Yeah, it's a little morbid. And um, suddenly some of the buttons go missing. And Helen Peters' family says, well, let's use the Ouija board, right? You're into this thing. Let's just find out who did it. And the Ouija board spells out a family member. And half the family members believe the Ouija board, and half the family members, including Helen Peters, do not. It starts a family feud that is never healed in that family. And so she leaves the Ouija board and spends the rest of her life telling people, don't ever play the Ouija board, it lies. Because again, it affected her very personally. Mm -hmm. So she has this child, this thing that we're still talking about 126 years later, and yet she exits the stage really fast. 
because again, it hurt her. Did they ever find out who stole the buttons? Not according to the family. Is that a mystery you're looking to solve? Because I'm curious. I, I would like to know who stole the buttons and I would like to find the, um, the locket. Those are, those are two good mysteries. That's, those are tough ones. Yeah. If they even exist anymore. Uh, now let's talk, now you kind of glossed over William Fold. Um, let, now he's kind of important because for a long time he got credit mm -hmm. for the Ouija board. And actually he mm -hmm. entered in pretty late. Uh, and he was someone who worked for uh, Kennard and uh, Rice. Yeah, so his so, name spelled Rice. It yeah. messes with my head. <laughs> so like EC Rush, he really Rush, you know there he you go. he wasn't a founder in the company, but he owned stock in it for a while because he was credited with inventing it. William Fold, we wouldn't be talking about the Ouija board today because he was a master marketer. So he was helping to make uh, the Ouija board. In 1890, one of the original again uh, investors and employee, and then in 1901, the original company gives him the right to make them exclusively, and so from 1901 to 1966, the William Fold Company makes Ouija boards, and he's smart because he sees the world changing, and again his children as well, and they know to alter the marketing depending on how the world is working. So they retell the story, they change the story, they never give the answer twice, they barely give any interviews knowing that the Ouija board has a reputation to uphold. And demystifying the mystifying oracle would be a disaster. So never telling the same story twice, barely giving any interviews, keeping the mystery, fantastic. But in 1927, William Fold falls off of the factory that the Ouija board told him to build. And which at the time, it was very clear what happened. He was overseeing a flagpole being put in. According to his family and many people, he was a micromanager. So instead of just letting everyone else take care of it, he had to go up there and you know tell them what they were doing right and doing wrong. And a mooring rips out of the side, he falls backwards, and he falls off of this three-story, one-block factory that was built. And he would have lived, he just had a concussion, broken ribs, broken arms, broken legs, but they did something we know we don't do today, which is they picked him up and they put him in back of a 1927 mm. car that didn't have any shocks and drove him to the hospital. Mm where one of his ribs pierced his heart. Right. The last thing he said before he died was never sell the Ouija board out of the family, which we know they did in 1966. Were there any repercussions for that, for disobeying his deathbed order? No. I mean, the Fold family sold it for a million dollars to Parker Brothers, which was unheard of at the time. No single game or single brand had ever um, brought in that much money. So uh, Parker Brothers, another family-run company, they had been after the Ouija board for a long time. And the reason they were watching and were able to make such a great offer was because they had heard as the Ouija board sales had been climbing through the roof in the 60s, they weren't able to meet demands. So they were hearing it kind of from other people they were selling it to, Macy's, Sears, Montgomery Ward. And so they were like, perfect. These people can't keep up with production. We can take this and we can make it even bigger. And in fact, in 1967, the Ouija board does something no other game has done before and no game has done since. It sold more copies than Monopoly. So in that one year, more Ouija boards were sold than ever. Wow. Well, that can't, I wonder if that's still the case. Is Monopoly still the best-selling game? That's what they say. Hasbro hmm. doesn't release too many numbers, but yeah. I think it's, it's, there are so many versions. The Simpsons, you know, yeah. you name it, Star Wars, I think it is still pretty dominant. Wow. Um, you'd think everyone would have one by now. 
so now you're glossing over a very important part of the story. We talked about feuds. So William Full did the unthinkable, which is something I would never personally do. He brought his brother into the business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that, that kind of culminated into a rift in the family, which I think was because uh, William did kind of an interesting thing. He had an agreement to produce, like he and his brother went into business, uh, they started producing boards, and then he signed an exclusive agreement with someone else, cutting his brother out of the equation. Um, mm-hmm. Let's talk about that. You know yeah. the story, but so um, you know, in 1897, the Ouija Novelty Company, when Charles Kennard left, the people were upset because Charles Kennard had tried to make another board called the Volo Board in 1892. He was breaking the patent that he once owned, and there was a federal lawsuit settled out of court. Um, they, of course, want to erase Charles Kennard from the history, so they changed the name from the Kennard Novelty Company to the Ouija Novelty Company. The Ouija Novelty Company goes on in, in 1897. They lease the ability to make the Ouija board to William Fold and his brother under the company, the Isaac Fold and Brother Company. And so from 1897 to 1901, the two brothers make this board. Hold on, it's the Isaac Fold and Brother Company? Isaac Fold and so Brother. So William takes a backseat to Isaac on this? Well, in the name. I mean, basically... That's a big deal. That's the face. Yeah, well, you know, what's interesting is is most people at the time were not connecting companies to things. The Ouija board was the Ouija board. That was the big thing. To us historians, looking back, the name on the box is really important. But mm-hmm. to the people at the time, they're just buying the Ouija board. And also, William Fold is, you know, getting into politics. And he was also in um, different areas and doing different businesses, and the Ouija board sales are cyclical. So when the Ouija board's not doing that great, and they, they were making other toys, um, you know, he was doing other things. And so he was a customs inspector. So as he's kind of making his living and you know being a public figure, his brother can kind of take over this business. And we don't know what happens, but in 1901, that initial contract runs out. And his mentor, uh, Colonel Washington Bowie, who was a surveyor for the Port of Baltimore, he's running the company, the Ouija Novelty Company. He says, okay, I'm just going to give it to you. You make it. Why did that happen? Neither side knows. Um, they never talked about it, but it caused a 96-year feud in the family. So the Ouija board kind of rips this family apart because Isaac is suddenly removed from the business. And according to him, he has no idea why. He's later accused of... Uh, bookkeeping misdeeds but that's all kind of after the fact it's and and they fight in court from 1901 to 1921 in court back and forth who has the right to make the Ouija board Isaac Fool doesn't like being removed so he tries to make them he gets a court order stopping him from making Ouija this is all in Baltimore so he goes on to make the Oriole board but it's an exact copy of what he was making with his brother we know this because years later his grandson would show all of these stencils that were cut out where the Ouija would be. So he took these stencils, changed them to Oriole, and actually used the original ones that were making Ouija boards with his brother to make Oriole boards. Got it. And so this fight happened, and in um, 1997, I was contacted first by the granddaughter of William Fold, and then a week later, the grandson of Isaac Fold. And, And I've read this story about this feud, so I'm thinking, I got to get this story out of them quickly because the minute one of them finds out I'm talking to the other side, pretty much going to be cut off. Right. Um, and so I, you know, I talked to them. Dangerous I, game you tried to play there. Ex- exactly. I, I thought it would be a very short game. I was kind of wrong because uh, one night uh, after telling them both that each other existed and they lived very close, 
their whole lives. The two families lived very close and were just always told, never talk to that side of the family. Uh, Kathy, the granddaughter of William Fold, asked me for Stuart's number and Uh she wanted to call him up. Oh boy. She did. She called up and um, Stuart's wife answered the phone and said, Stu, you better sit down because she said who she was. And Stuart had been looking his whole life for someone to talk to on the other side of the family. And the two sides buried the hatchet. And in 1997, we had a Fold family reunion, the first time both sides were together in 96 years. And today, you know, as we're doing this interview, we're actually sitting in the house of one of those descendants. And so that's true. Made a lot of friends. And uh, again, great story. You've mended a lot of fences. You've been as important to the history of the Ouija board as anyone. <laughs> I know. You know, I, I'd love to say that I, I, it's timing and it's being... Um, in the right place at the right time. It's, it's a lot of luck. I, I, I just happened to be the person who was looking for the mystery. It could have equally been someone else. It's just that I'm incredibly patient and I don't take no for an answer. So That's great. hunting down these relatives and wanting the story, most people and the relatives don't know they've got incredibly important pieces of the puzzle because they don't make sense without all the other pieces. Mm-hmm. It just seems like a random letter or a diary or a photograph. And so that's why I work with all of these people of the Talking Board Historical Society, all of these other collectors, because they all have pieces of these puzzle. So I'm really just one of the people looking at the bigger puzzle and trying to put all those pieces together. But you can't do it if you try to do it alone. It's just impossible. That is impossible. I do want to know the answer to one mystery that you have yet to answer. When Stewart's <laughs> wife asked him to sit down, did he? He did actually sit down because he did everything his wife told him. He was pretty smart. Okay. He, he understood happy wife, happy life. Well, that there's there's my answer. Not much of a mystery. Uh, now let's talk about. We're glossed over one other thing here, Merch. Very important aspect here. Everything's happy go lucky so far. Pretty cool mm-hmm. history. Everything's going well until 1973. What happens mm-hmm. that year that destroys the good name of Ouija? <laughs> well, you know, for people, it's this isn't like a, a switch that gets thrown. It's not like one day. Everyone loves the Ouija board, and the next day everyone well, kind of is cute. like that. No, well, it is kind of like that. Exactly. Things are changing. So, what's happening is, is if we look in movies, and we look in how the people are looking at the Ouija board, it's getting darker. So the Ouija board is a logical step in a progression that's already happening, and that's prior to that, the Ouija board is being depicted as like a date game, something funny. You know, do you like me? Yes. Norman no. Rockwell did a painting of this. Exactly. So in 1920, it's the Saturday Evening Post, Mm -hmm. a man and a woman. She's looking up to the spirits, and he's kind of looking at her blouse. Mm -hmm. So the thing never changes. Nothing changes, man. Nothing changes. The world is the same. But it's always seen as kind of helping. Who's the killer? The Ouija board spells out the answer. But already by 13 ghosts, we're seeing the Ouija board giving really sinister answers and warning people that you're going to die. Things are getting darker. So is Hollywood imitating life? And that's what people think. Or is life imitating art? We don't know. But by 1973, we know that this little girl named Reagan in the movie mm-hmm. uses a board alone, speaks to something called Captain Howdy, and suddenly she's possessed by Pazuzu, a demon. Mm-hmm. Well, that little brief scene, it's very short, it's less than two minutes, that she talks about playing with the Ouija board, sets off in public consciousness the idea that suddenly something that everyone has in their house is potentially a doorway to demonic possession. There were always religious groups who thought it was bad. There were always people who thought the Ouija board would make you mad. But demonic possession seemed to pick up steam because of that movie. And so that sets off something kind of new. You know, before it's evil spirits, it's dark things, but suddenly it's 
truly demonic from the devil. And, you know, Bible thumpers would say, yeah, we knew this all along, but that's not the average person. So we see a shift in public consciousness that these things are potentially dangerous in a bigger way than we had seen before. It was more accepted. And so the exorcist does a very Alfred Hitchcockian thing to the Ouija board and not on purpose, but it's like taking a shower. Well, today, because of Psycho, we hear a noise and we're in the shower and we're like, what was that? Mm-hmm. So everyone has to take a shower. But now we're kind of scared of it. Birds. Well, birds, what if they attack you? The birds are everywhere. So all, suddenly these games, Ouija boards that are in everyone's closet, that are in everyone's attic, that are in everyone's basement, everyone's playing it, they're suddenly potentially dangerous. And so that idea starts to creep in. And again, it's not overnight. It's not like everyone sees the exorcist and thinks they're evil. It takes a little bit of time because the pendulum is swinging. And so it, it's like a line in the sand. It's the, it, it's the first big movie to explore that demonic possession. And because it was so popular, it has a large effect. Yeah, but I mean, there's lots of... I mean, really what you're saying is you're taking mundane items and turning them against us. Mm -hmm. And I think with birds, the birds are everywhere. And then after that movie, people were really scared of birds when they're Mm -hmm. pretty harmless creatures for the most part. But I think with the Ouija board, you have something that most people used all the time. And then all of a Mm -hmm. sudden, it's like, oh, you know, that can be used for this awful, terrible thing. If it is a gateway to the other side... The other mm-hmm. side may not be good all the time. Mm-hmm. There could be evil things there. And then people are like, oh, my God. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. look at what happened with airplanes in 9-11. Everyone mm-hmm. flew all the time. Yeah. People would walk up to the gate, and all of a sudden, hey, that airplane, we can turn it against you. Mm-hmm. And for the past 16 years, everyone's been scared of airplanes, yep. scared of flying. You know, it's the same kind of idea. Uh, but I think, you know, and much like 9-11, that's what happened overnight. I think the exorcist mm-hmm. really did do that because I think it, 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 it woke something up in the average person that, oh, this thing, oh, my God, this could be evil. And not just like a little evil, like it can possess my daughter. Full on, right. Full on yeah. possession and, and death. And again, this is a movie. So the exorcist is a real story about a little boy who was supposedly Yeah, it's based possessed. on a true story, yeah. But no one cares about the true story because everyone saw the movie. Unrelated yeah. to the Ouija board and the right. true story, I believe, well, right? Or was there a Ouija board involved in the true story? People say that there was a Ouija board involved. There's actually no proof there was one. It's likely because in 1940s when this was happening, Ouija boards were on the upswing. So mm. potentially okay. he could have used one. Um, but in this movie, you know, movies do have a big effect on us. And um, you know, today as Ouija movies are coming out and the brand is actually reaching out into the entertainment world... The reason it's resonating so much is because people believe, again, that there might be a cost of trying to part the veil. That it's not as simple as just saying, hey, uh, who's there, and getting your answers or getting the lottery numbers. That there might be a cost. There might be a price. And the price could be really high because you don't know who's going to answer. It's not just, you're not just dialing one person. Anyone can answer. And again, by, that, by planting that seed, that belief that you're not in control of the communication, that's where it gets scary because you just don't know. What if it's something pretending to be the person you want it to be? Yeah. No, that's true. But, I mean, I think my guess is, where where do you stand on this issue? Are you for Ouija boards uh, in the positive light or negative light? Do you dislike that or are you just about the history and enjoying it as it unfolds? You know, I'm a skeptic. And I'm, I'm glad you, you kind of aren't sure what I think about Ouija boards by how I'm doing the interview because yeah. I do that on purpose. I'm a skeptic who wants to believe, just like the X-Files. I want this to be true. I want to believe that my whole life isn't going to amount to a bunch of ashes at the end of it and that there's something else after. I want that to be true. 
And for 25 years, I've gone to paranormal conferences and ghost hunts and explored the history because it is a reflection of that want belief. I think I'm, I sit in a very large boat. Most people want it to be true, but do they really believe it? You know, it depends on the experiences you've had. I, I've had experiences that for five minutes I believed. I think something's happening. And then right afterwards, my brain starts to kick in and say, well, it could have been this, this, or this, and there's really no proof. And, and that's the beauty of it. Be, the Ouija board's still popular because people are still dying, and we haven't solved that mystery. And so Ouija boards will continue to be popular even in a world of tap, swipe, text. You know, seeing kids and these new movies that are coming out, they're bringing a whole new generation to the board. So for them to actually, to see a kid sit down for 15 or 20 minutes and be quiet and ask a question and be patient for the answer is amazing. It's just not the way our world works. That is amazing. That's a miracle in and of itself. (laughs) And and that's what this has done. You know, this new series of movies have actually infiltrated and, and brought Ouija to the consciousness again you know, as it's ebb and flows. So what's really neat about it is for me, I want it to be true. Am I sure it is? No. I do believe the Ouija board works. I do believe that it does something. Is it your subconscious? Is it a gateway to something else? Is it your mind manifesting in the physical world? I don't know. Can it be all three? Does it have to be the same thing every time? I don't think so. I don't think it's that simple. And and that's the beauty. That is the beauty. Let's quickly talk about what are possible explanations. Um, so there is a scientific explanation, mm-hmm. and this is ID motor response, is that what it's exactly. called? So how does that work? Well, so ID motor response is something that was um, talked about with Faraday and um, Benjamin Carpenter. Uh, this goes back in, to the eight, mid-1800s, yeah. Exactly. So by, by the 1850s, scientists believe that you can be affected by your subconscious, that your brain can make you do things that you are not consciously aware of. And they're looking at this whole spiritualist movement laughing. How can the public possibly think this is ghosts when to them it's obviously their subconscious, table turning, rapping. It's all the fact that you want it to work, and so it does. It's, it's like self-fulfilling prophecy. But idea motor response is the marrying of you want something to work and the small movements in your hands. For the Ouija board, we're gonna talk about it. So we're made of muscles, and our muscles don't wanna stay still. You all remember when you're little, and you're, the teacher puts you on a line and says stand there, and you just watch all the kids sway. Mm. We just don't wanna stay still. So your hands are constantly moving. Some people shake a little more than others. But your mind wants something to happen, and so those small movements become fluid. And so suddenly the fact that you're already kind of moving your brain will use that small movement to answer the question unbeknownst to you. So you're doing it, it's all you, you just don't know it. And so when you used a Ouija board and ask a question, what was my great, great, great grandmother's middle name and it spells out Rose, you call your grandmother and she tells you and you're like, I never knew that, no one ever told me. Well, when you were two years old, someone might have mentioned her name, that information went back. Because we know that when you hypnotize someone, we can get information that you can't remember. So your subconscious does some amazing things. It filters everything out so that you can concentrate and you can be effective. So when you walk into a bank, you see everything. You see people's color of their eyes, their shirts, their socks, their shoes. But if I ask you that after you go into the bank, you won't remember any of that because that's not why you were there. You were there to like cash a check or whatever you were gonna do. Hopefully not rob it. Right, but, right. <laughs> but you can't remember it. But if I hypnotize you, those details are there. So your mind is this bank of all of this crazy information. 
And again, because you want it to work, scientists believe that those small movements become fluid and you answer the question. That makes sense. I mean, that's a good logical reason behind it. The other, so there's a couple other answers, the explanations. Mm -hmm. The other could be that this is actually, the other end of the pendulum is this is a, a spiritual tool that you absolutely, just by its nature, are able to tap into another dimension or another veil or cut through the veil, whatever you want to say. Mm -hmm. The other one, which I thought was kind of interesting, I don't know if it's true or not, but that when you sit there and if you go through the right kind of process, you can line up with people telepathically mm -hmm. um, and create kind of like a, a beacon for whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So it's not, this isn't necessarily like a telephone to the other side, but mm -hmm. that you can, in a way, kind of channel uh, energies like that. That's a kind of an interesting idea. Well, absolutely. And again, I think it comes down to this not understanding the brain completely. We know the brain is an amazing thing. And even in 2016, we know, or it is said, we use a very small percentage of our brain. Well, what if some of that brain could be used to whether it, again, it's opening up something to your subconscious, which to me is still pretty amazing. The fact that you can do something that you swear you're not doing is pretty cool. Yeah. But can you manifest, can you create a ghost by believing in it? And I mean, not just, okay, yeah, it exists because I believe it, but I mean, can I cause a poltergeist? Can I cause something to move? You know, is telepathy real? Um, all of those things the Ouija board explores because we just don't know why it's working every time. And do you need a gift? Are there some people who are just naturally attuned to being able to use their brain in that way? You know, or is it as simple as, again, you're tricking yourself because you want it to be. And, and, and that's the beauty of the game. We just don't know. And, and I think there have been lots of people, including Houdini, who've tried to debunk things. But because people still have experiences and we're still fascinated by death because we're all going to get there, no one escapes death and taxes, the two things that are certain, um, no way out, it's going to affect us. And I think today the Ouija board is often looked at as... Um, you know, something you do at sleepovers. It's like a rite of passage, you know. But the Ouija board is most people's first purposeful experience in contacting the other side. When you're little, you might have heard something or seen something or you experienced something. But it's really the first time you sit down to say, is anyone there? And first experiences make huge impacts. They affect us everything. So, you know, whether that's driving, whether it's the first time you kiss someone, whatever it is, those experiences make a huge mark on us. And, and the Ouija board has made that mark on every generation. Every generation since its inception discovers the Ouija board and kind of makes it its own. And so Ouijisticians are born. And, and that's a, you know, kind of a term um, that was invented by Gene Orlando from the Museum of Talking Boards. Um, and these are these urban legends that grow up around the use of this mystical game. Yeah, I mean, we, haven't, we didn't even get into all the stories that can go along with these things, which could fill a whole nother hour. Uh, but I think that's a good place to end it. Um, I'm going to end it on Parker Brothers' famous line, which, which is how they sold, how they marketed this thing. It's just a game, isn't it? Uh, I love that line. It's such a perfect way to market that game. Uh, Merch, how can people get in touch with you? How can people learn more about this incredible, your incredible passion for this thing? <laughs> well, if people want to see, you know, how obsessed I am and follow me, um, I'm on Facebook. You can see it at facebook.com uh, slash talking boards. Twitter is at talking boards, Instagram. But really check out the Talking Board Historical Society, and that's at uh, tbhs.org, and see all the other amazing people. Two great websites to view besides mine, uh, robertmerch.com or uh, museumoftalkingboards.com and mysteriousplanchette.com. So you can see 
the wide range of these boards and many other spirit communication tools. But one of the things you kind of said was you really liked that line, it's just a game, isn't it? Well, two years ago, Hasbro changed that line. And when you open the Ouija board, the very first thing it says is never play the Ouija board if you believe it's just a game. So That's even better. There you go. That's even there better. There we are, 2016. <laughs> uh, Merch, thank you so much for being on the show, man. This has been incredible and very enlightening. Thank you. Thank you so much for allowing me to. It's been a blast. <laughs> thank you. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was written and performed by E.A. Barrientos and was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos. If you want to get more involved with the show, go to fascinatingnouns.com where you will find links to all of the social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, YouTube. And for this episode, we've got videos, pictures on all the social media accounts. Uh, Check it out. Get more involved. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher so you will never miss an episode. Thank you so much for listening. End of transmission. Thank you.